Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of the most significant and famous writings have come from men who were in prison. You can think of Martin Luther King Jr. in a Birmingham jail, or Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Soviet Union's Gulag. You can think of John Bunyan in prison writing The Pilgrim's Progress. Martin Luther himself having to hide out in the castle of Wartburg, translating the German into the New Testament into German. And then we have the apostles, the apostle John exiled on Patmos and having the vision of the revelation. Or the apostle Paul writing several of his letters from prison in Rome. There is something about confinement, restriction, binding that brings us and our lives into focus. And it's not just that we have literally been imprisonment, but we have an imprisonment experience, like someone who is hospitalized and recovering from heart surgery. How many times does a person face that kind of a trial and yet come out of it saying, my life will never be the same? Or every day is a new beginning and you learn what really matters. We go through other sorts of imprisonments, unemployment or divorce, bereavement or war. We go through trials and struggles that bring us uncertainty and force us to wait for the Lord. And how many times as a pastor do I hear somebody say, well, I've prayed more in the last few months than I ever have before. Or I'm closer to the Lord now than I ever was. At such times, we also hear the world rally against suffering, the world crying out against pain or restrictions, the world rallying against God and saying, why would God allow the people he loves to suffer? And yet what they don't realize is we need these experiences as humans and as sinful human beings. We need to go through imprisonment. We need them because the seduction of the world and sin is too powerful for us. The seduction of Tarshish, which is this faraway place, a place of freedom, a place of pleasure, a place of comfort and beauty and happiness. But we know Tarshish is a fraud. We see it on the sales flyers and posters and marketing. It's so persuasive. And what makes it so persuasive is above all else, at Tarshish, there's no accountability. There's, there's no one watching out for us. There's no God who can see us there. And we can put on masks and be our own gods. So a loving God will simply not stand by and allow us to go to Tarshish. He knows the destruction of those freedoms that will come on us, and he also knows the destruction that's already coming on Nineveh if we don't turn around. 
So he sends a storm. He sends a type of storm where there's no control, where we've tried everything to avoid it. We've rowed as hard as we can. We've prayed as hard as we can. We've hurled the cargo over. Only there's one thing left that hasn't been hurled over, and that's Jonah. So at last, they determined to throw Jonah into the sea. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So we see in the story of Jonah this experience. First, the experience of Sheol, then the crying out in distress. And thirdly, the question, is there anything missing from his prayer? Jonah experienced what it meant to be tossed into Sheol. It's a Hebrew word. He mentions it in chapter 2 that uh, the ESV does not translate it. It simply says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. It uses this Hebrew word, Sheol, which to the Hebrews was known as an underground realm. Sometimes the Old Testament uses it literally to speak of the grave or a tomb. A place where you would bury someone, their body, and they decompose in the earth. But also the Psalms and other places in the Old Testament will use it in a cosmic sense. A sense of the metaphysical. The lowest realms where souls and spirits go when they die. A place where you await judgment. And by extension, it can also refer to the underworld. The place of absolute darkness. The place of absolute death. The place where evil spirits and demons are kept chained for the day of judgment. A third way the Old Testament uses it is in a spiritual sense then. So based on these physical and then the cosmic sense is the spiritual sense of what we go through in this life where in a sense we're crossing over into death but yet we're still alive and a despair of the soul the dark night feelings of darkness or loneliness depression a sense where the psalms will say has god forgotten me It's called a prison, it's called a pit, it's called chains. In Psalm 18, the psalmist says, The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help, and from his temple he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. So you see, it also can include this experience we go through spiritually in this world, which affects us physically, which affects us spiritually. It's like dying in some ways, being entangled. So Jonah uses this metaphor and builds on it, although he is literally sinking in the water. And he says he's gone to the roots of the mountain. He's gone to rock bottom. 
So he cries out in distress, which is what we would normally do in such a situation. We cry out in distress. I've wondered for some time about this prayer of Jonah, and I've struggled a long time. Is Jonah truly repentant? Because, of course, you know how the story goes on. After this prayer, and it's, it's a wonderful prayer when you read it, he goes on to head back to Nineveh, and yet his attitude never changes. And in the end, he's angry at God because God forgives the Ninevites and Jonah didn't want him to. Now, the prayer itself is faithful, and it quotes several psalms. In fact, if you had a cross-reference in your Bible, you could go through. It begins with Psalm 3. It ends with Psalm 3. In the middle, it has Psalm 31 and Psalm 69. Psalm 31 says, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. Psalm 69, save me, for the waters have come up to my neck. He quotes the Psalms in reference to this experience of Sheol. The waters are meant to picture the difficulty and chaos of other forces in your life that have come up to the point you're almost drowning. We'll say you've just kept your nose above water. Have you ever been through something where you felt this way? Where you were up to your neck in something Now, if life had only been peaceful stillness, only calm, comfortable, beachside vacation resorts with the drinks, with the little umbrellas in them, if that was all your life were ever, if there were no sorrows, no distress, would you pray this prayer? Would you know what it is to be grateful? Why are rich kids always... The ones with the silver spoon in their hands who are the last to know what gratitude is, and they're usually the first to complain. So God hurls the storm. He allows our own decision-making to unravel in front of us and others' decision-making to affect us as well when he says, sees that people are heading in the wrong direction so that we will cry out. And Jonah cries out, and this is the prayer that he prays in chapter 2 of Jonah. Which brings us what I consider the most crucial question here. Does Jonah get it? Does he get what he's praying? Do we get what he's praying? Is there anything missing? There's no question that Jonah wanted to be saved. And there's no question that when somebody goes through a difficult experience and they cry out, they want to be delivered. They want to be freed. They want to be out of that pain. But the question is, what is it he wants to be saved from? And what is it he wants to be saved for? Those are the crucial questions to ask yourself. What do you want to be saved from, and what do you want to be saved for? Now, the turning point in the psalm is chapter 2, verse 6, where he says that he's gone down to the roots of the mountains in the waters. He went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, and so it shifts, 
You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So reading this over this week and meditating on it and then looking at some different takes and interpretations, it dawned on me. It was like a light bulb moment that changed the way that I read this song. He begins by saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Now, is that in the present or the past? So Jonah's looking to the past. I called out. He answered me from the belly of Sheol. He's talking about something that's just happened, and yet we know at the time of the prayer he's still in the belly of the fish. How can he say, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, if he's still in the fish? And up to this point, I'd always thought, well, he's just maybe anticipating what's coming next. But there's a sense in which we could see it that the fish is the deliverance. In other words, at the end of chapter 1, it says, They hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And then as his prayer goes on, he describes not what is happening in the belly of the fish, but what it was to sink down to the bottom of the sea. The weeds wrapping around his head at the roots of the mountain. He's hit rock bottom. And then you can see the fish as the salvation that saves him from drowning. Which shifts it to a slightly different light. Which brings us back to the question, what is the prayer of Jonah representing? What does he really believe about his deliverance? I came across one sermon title that said, Jonah's fishy prayer. A fishy prayer. What would be fishy about his prayer? Now, the prayer is dead center in the, of the story. There's Right in the center, there's a parallel between what happens on the boat and then what happens in Nineveh, and right in the middle is this prayer in the fish. Before the fish, you have Jonah being obedient, but yet disobedient, heading to Tarshish. And then afterwards, you have Jonah being disobedient in his obedience. Even though he goes, he still refuses to offer the gospel freely. Is there anything missing in his prayer? Now certainly there's not any scripture missing because it's filled with scripture. From the beginning to the end, it's basically a piecing together of the Psalms. In other words, Jonah knows the Psalms. He knows them by heart, he's got them memorized, and he's piecing together different Psalms in his prayer. But it's interesting that the psalms that he's quoting are either a psalm of lament or a psalm of vindication. Now, in a psalm of lament, what he's doing with like Psalm 31, by quoting Psalm 31, he's lamenting the situation, which anyone would in this scenario. He's lamenting what's happening, the pain, the distress, and he says... I'm driven away from your sight, which is kind of ironic because why did Jonah go to Tarshish in the first place? 
to get out of the Lord's sight, to flee from the face of the Lord. And now he says, I'm driven out of your sight. Or a psalm of vindication. He quotes Psalm 3 twice. Many thousands have set themselves against me. Psalm 3 is crying out for justice against God's enemies. It says, strike all my enemies on the cheek. His prayer is coming from a place where he's crying out to the Lord for for justice. Psalm 31, Psalm 50. And he ends with this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. He quotes this from Psalm 50, which is interesting. When you look at Psalm 50, indeed it points out that you will offer sacrifices. Psalm 50, verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But in the context of the rest of the psalm, the Lord is actually rebuking his people. It's not a psalm against the enemies of God. It's against his own people. And it points out that their sacrifices have been empty. It says in verse 7, Hear my people, I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God. I am your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. They're going to church. They're worshiping. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And then he says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? What right have you to quote the scriptures back to me? For you hate discipline, he says, and you cast my words behind you. The irony of quoting this psalm at the end is the context is actually rebuking Jonah. I remember a movie scene with Burt Reynolds. He was starring as Sonny, and Sonny had decided he wanted to end his life. So he was on the beach shore of a lake, and he decided that he wanted to die. So he began swimming. And he swam out as far as he could, saying, I want to die, I want to die. He gets out into the lake till he's always out so far from shore he can never make it back. And he starts to sink. And then in a moment of conversion, he comes up from the water and he says, I want to live. I want to live. And he starts praying. So he starts swimming and he, he says, Lord, I know what I've done is wrong, and if if you will just save me, I'll give you everything I have. 
I'll be a better father. I'll be a better man. I'll be a better everything. And all I ask is that you make me a better swimmer. I promise to keep every one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, he says, I promise I'll learn every one of the Ten Commandments. I promise not to sell a lakeside lot where there's no lake by it. I promise to give you 50% of everything I make. Nobody gives 50%. And he keeps swimming. And pretty soon as he gets closer to shore and closer to shore, he says, I think I'm going to make it. I'll start donating that 10% right as soon as I get back. I know I said 50, but 10 just to start. And then he gets to shore, comes up, breathing heavily, and says, I know it was you who saved me, but it was you who made me sick in the first place. See, here's the thing about hitting rock bottom. It's deeper for some than others. You can't be resurrected if you don't actually die. Jonah appears to hit rock bottom. He hits the roots of the mountain. The bars are closed in. Sheol is around me. But it all does no good if he doesn't learn why. Psalm 50 is pointing out that Israel did, was despising the Lord's discipline. They didn't understand that the one that the Lord loves, he chastens. They wanted to be saved, but they didn't understand what to be saved from. They wanted to be saved from suffering, but they didn't realize it was their self and their sin that put them there. The irony is that Jonah rebukes the those who offer to idols and says he'll give his sacrifice, but it was on the boat that the sailors already understood that. It was on the boat that the sailors offered the very same thing, the sacrifice of thanksgiving and vows, and it says they feared the Lord before Jonah understood any of it. Jonah says, you cast me into the sea. And there's the key. Did the Lord cast Jonah into the sea? No. Jonah cast himself into the sea. And that's the difference between a prayer that sounds good and a prayer that gets it. There's no confession of sin in this story. There's no repentance. Jonah doesn't grasp the character of God. And he's more like Sonny, who is interested in the Lord saving him, but doesn't understand for what purpose. Repentance and confession is essential to our prayers in times of distress. So I'm sharing with you this message here based on the interpretation the Lord's given me. And I know there's different ways of looking at this prayer, but this is the message for today that I see the vomiting up of Jonah and the word vomit 
is used in verse 10, where the fish vomited Jonah onto the dry land, a word, vomit, that is only used in the Old Testament in a negative way. Didn't just spit him out. Didn't just deliver him out of the fish. It vomited him because it was sick of his empty prayer. When Jesus refers to this, He's speaking to the religious leaders, and he rebukes them because they're an evil and adulterous generation seeking a sign, and no sign will be given except the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Which brings us to the greater Jonah, the one unlike us, who have offered empty sacrifices to the Lord, we need Jesus. And Jesus goes through everything Jonah goes through. He experiences Sheol in a way that we will never have to, we will never comprehend fully in this life. Both in his life, spiritually, he was tested and tried. On the cross, he was forsaken by God to the point that he cried out, why? In a way that none of us could ever cry out. And he was buried in the grave, in Sheol, for three days, three nights. Jonah was in the heart of the sea. Jesus was in the heart of the earth. And we can recognize Good Friday, the cross, with its message of atonement and deliverance. And we will celebrate Easter with the garden story of new life and glory and hope. But don't ever forget the day that came in between. Holy Saturday, a day that the church hardly even remembers or recognizes anymore. The day in which he was buried. He was buried for us. He was buried. And as he died, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit He prayed out of his own righteousness and yet also out of his own bearing of all of our sins. And he was buried in our death. Jesus truly died and he died a faithful death. He was chastised and punished because of our iniquities so that in his life, in his resurrection, we have true life. We have true hope. We have true forgiveness. We have true purpose. We are saved from sin. We're saved for salvation. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just sit back and grumble about why more people aren't listening. He set forth the gospel message into our hearts, into sailors, like the ones with Jonah, like Simon Peter, into Ninevites, like the Canaanite woman and others who have lived a sinful life. And maybe we can realize the end of the story, it shows a God who is merciful, faithful, compassionate. And the fish might be the very thing that God appointed. It didn't put you into distress, but saved you from something worse. 
Salvation does indeed belong to the Lord. So when you are in that moment, when you are in that trial, what can you write about it? What can you say? What can you pray that might help another person going through the same thing? In Jesus' name, amen.